When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I said, how did she get Gene Hackman to go in, in the water in his clothes? And the assistant said, Annie told Gene that she'd let him leave an hour early if he, <laughs> if he would do this picture. And I was like, oh yeah, it's important to remember that people don't want to spend their day doing this. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. It's been said that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But when your interests and passions lead you in so many different directions, sometimes it's not that simple. Today's guest is an accomplished photographer whose sense of curiosity has taken him on many different paths, from building a recording studio to fuel his obsession for music, to learning carpentry skills in order to help him build skate ramps. His current endeavor is a documentary film that tells the story of one of his teenage heroes, legendary skateboarder Tony Hawk. Our guest has been an avid skateboarder since his teens, and it's a story that's very personal to him. The project involved a great amount of trust, honesty, and a genuine willingness to explore wherever the story might lead. But ultimately, there's no substitute for experience. His listening skills and keen sense of observation cultivated during his career as a photographer turned out to be an invaluable asset during the making of this film. So how do you make a film about a skateboarder without making it a skate film? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with the storyteller behind the acclaimed documentary Until the Wheels Fall Off. Today, photographer, skateboarder, filmmaker, and teenage plywood thief, Mr. Sam Jones. Sam Jones, thanks for sitting down, man. I appreciate you taking the time out. Of course. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm going to jump right in. I just got an opportunity to watch Until the Wheels Fall Off, the Tony Hawk documentary that you just directed. And uh, congratulations, man. I just, I really, I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Did it come out how you wanted? Are you pleased with it? I am pleased with it. I, I've worked on it for a long time and worked on it through the pandemic. And it had, a, it had not a false start, but it, it certainly took a while to get going once, once the... Uh, I don't know, once the, the contracts were in place and everything, COVID hit and trying to figure out how to shoot this thing and how to make it the film I wanted it to be with all the challenges was, it was challenging. So I, it, I'm really happy with the way it came out. I think that it was the film that I always wanted to make. I always wanted to make a skate film because I grew up as a skater and to do it with Tony and, and have him be the partner that he was and willing and honest and generous with his time was it was great so i mean every time i watch a movie like this i'm always just amazed at the amount of time that it must have taken to assemble this archive footage and do the interviews and then try and just piece it together and and craft some sort of cohesive narrative from from conception to the festival premiere how long did it take to make this movie well I first saw Tony at the skate park in 1983. So how many years is that? <laughs> <laughs> you first pitched him back then. No, but the funny thing is that is that, that was all part of making this film because I, I grew up doing this and I was at all the contests that are in the film and I skated. Uh, I was on a team and skated these events. And so that was an incredible advantage in finding archive stuff is that I already knew about most of it. I already knew what existed on film and what didn't and who shot it. And, you know, not specifically, but but 
you know, there were there were there were VHS tapes that I owned back then in 84, 85 that uh, it was easier for me to track down because I knew they existed. So I, I asked Tony about this thing in maybe 2015. I, I kind of floated the idea by him and we started talking about it. And and then I think by around 2017, we made it official and then it took a while to the contractual stuff and things like that. And, and then um, and then it took a while to kind of figure out the finance structure. And basically, we took it around the town as a pitch to a lot of places, a lot, a lot of places that ended up actually bidding on it later as a finished film. And we didn't get we didn't get much interest for financing, at least not at the level we felt it was worth. Uh, and, and when I say we, I'm talking about myself and the Duplass brothers who who were my producing partners on this. So then and then COVID hit and I was tired of waiting. And I felt like Tony had trusted me with his story and was kind of wondering what was going on. So I just said, look, we're just going to start and we'll figure out how to pay for it as we go. So we self-financed it and stopped worrying about trying to find an investor. And they just made it through COVID. So, you know, it was in. All the interviews were outdoors, which was a nice aesthetic, and I liked it anyway, but it's not something I ever would have done if it wasn't for COVID, because it's just too hard to record sound outdoors. You know, I have to say, though, the scenes, and and something that really did stick out when I was watching this movie, the scenes of Tony in the swimming pool, beautifully shot. It really, it it, it definitely stuck out, because I know sometimes you see a lot of documentaries and the content is compelling, but visually it looks like it's a VH1 interview from 95, you know, it's just not, it's yeah. not, but it's really beautiful. It definitely, it, it stuck out to me. I've always gone for really minimal uh, interview setups because I feel like the attention should be on the subject. And I also just hate that look of there's somebody in a chair and there's a vase in the background out of focus with yeah. a little Lico on it or something. And, and it, it just, it does, it puts you in a certain mindset of what kind of film it is. And I didn't want that, you know, to be the mindset. And the truth is, I grew up outdoors entirely. My mom would literally send us out on a summer morning after breakfast and lock the door. And we weren't coming back in until dinner was ready, you know, because she was a firm believer of like, you know, go, go live your life. So I spent most of my childhood outdoors and and skating culture was obviously completely outdoors. And so the interviews made sense to do that, but it also lined up well with the COVID situation. So, I mean, you know, Tony Hawk is obviously a, an amazing skateboarder, a fantastic athlete. He's articulate and compelling, and he was self-reflective in this documentary. But I would imagine as a celebrity photographer, you've crossed paths with a lot of people that would fit that description. Like, why would you choose to spend such a large portion of your life devoting to this movie? Like, why, why Tony Hawk? Why did you make this movie? Well, because it was, it was my childhood and my formative years and the reason that I think I'm a creative person to this day is from skateboarding. I I did not find my way until I found skateboarding. I was a scrawny I was like Tony. I was a scrawny skinny kid that hit puberty, you know, some sometime mid college. <laughs> and uh when I found skateboarding, I found my little crowd of people and I got some confidence and I realized that, oh maybe I was small and weak, but I took chances that other people wouldn't, or I, I had courage to some extent. Uh, and, and so through skateboarding, I gained independence, I gained confidence, I, I met a bunch of artists. Uh, we, we started taking pictures and drawing and making skateboards, our, you know, our own board models with graphics. And I actually became a photographer because my friend Neil Blender was a pro skater, but he was also a photographer. And we would go skating and he would teach me how to take pictures while we were skating places. Wow. And my first published picture ever was in Transworld Skateboarding Magazine of Neil for an ad for GNS, which I didn't get paid for, by the way. <laughs> of course. But, uh, but that was, you know, that was sort of my, it was my entire lifestyle and upbringing and obsession. So it's a very so, this is a personal movie for you. Very very personal movie, and I'm in the movie actually. I'm 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 at the Upland contest where oh, I didn't notice that. I didn't notice where that. Tony. You wouldn't. I was just in the stands with my friend. But you know, to be to to be able to go through and find all this archived uh, imagery and 
and relive that and then go talk to everybody, some of who were my friends and some of whom were my heroes. Yeah, it was it was about the most personal documentary I can make. So, you know, so many skateboarding documentaries and action sport documentaries, they, they tend to have this second act that deals with some really dark chapters in the subject's lives. Um, you know, whether it's Dogtown and Z-Boys or the Mark Gator Rogowski doc or the Christian Hasoy doc or even the Bunker Spreckles doc. And, you know, we had Tony on the show a couple weeks ago and he alluded to some of the scenes in this movie that were really difficult for him to watch because it dealt with some very, you know, personal issues that he was going through. After I watched it, I had this epiphany. It was like, wow, there's, there's no violence. There's no criminal activity. There's no uh, excessive drug use. There's no uh, financial ruin. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's a pretty flattering documentary of him in the end. I mean, it's him dealing with his personal growth of being a, a father and, and a husband. But, you know, ultimately, it's, it's a pretty, he's, he comes off as pretty likable. And, you know, I'm curious... Was there some part of you that secretly wished you could dig up something a little bit more salacious about him? I mean, were you prepared to go wherever this documentary took you? Yes. And and no, I I did not want to dig up something salacious. I think the reason that I approached Tony is that, you know, so often you meet people that you've looked up to and they they do. They do not meet your expectations or you, you find out in a hard way that they're very human. And with Tony, he was a kid that. I looked up to so much. He just seemed like he he was everything that skateboarding could be when you worked your ass off, right? And and he was so much better than everybody else. And he was a genuinely good person. So for me, I think the challenge of the film was how do I explain what it is to devote your life to something? and how that shapes your identity, and what problems that creates. So, uh, look, you, you talk about the Gator documentary, you talk about the Christian Soy documentary, you're talking about a murderer and a major drug dealer and addict. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a dark side to these, to these pursuits. And, but almost when you, when you dig into it, to most, most public life, you know, most people don't get through a very high-profile public life without some disastrous, but you mentioned some very, very dark ones. With Tony, I think the the complexity and the layers of of his particular situation were very interesting to me, and that was identity and aging. And to find what you love at age 10 and have it still be what you love at age 50, that doesn't happen to very many people. And in some ways, and in some arguments, you could say that's a trap because you never move on or grow or 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 expand your life. It's, it's like you look at these people like Michael Jordan or a piano player or a, a, you know, somebody who does one thing so well that that's all they're known for. It's sort of a prison in itself to be that known for something, you know, that specific. And, and that's Tony's journey. And that's his, his challenge, I think is, and it's still going on, you know. As you probably know, he broke his femur last week, yeah. And it makes the last twenty minutes of our film. It it certainly colors it a different shade because um, I think before he broke his femur, you could watch this film and you could have an argument about risk versus life fulfillment versus aging versus uh, legacy. Uh, and now I think you look at it a little differently with him, and you go, okay, well, maybe he's not as bulletproof as we all thought he was or, or maybe yeah. maybe there are some limits to how many mctwists you can do in your 50s or whatever it is so that's something that i'm the same age so that's something i'm dealing with i i ride motocross and i still skateboard and i still want to do things i go ride mountain bikes pretty you know aggressively and and it's happening to all of us and, and it does happen to all of us as certain time in your life is, is how, how do you, how do you put away things or, or get worse at things you love? You know, yeah. like I probably have played my last full court basketball game and I hate that because I used to love doing that, but I, I, you know, I hated having hamstring injuries or broken ankles or whatever. So I, to me, the, this film is about identity and it's about aging and it's about acceptance and deciding how you want to live your life and what level of risk you want to have in your life. 
It's it's funny that you brought up the Michael Jordan documentary because it seems like, and I, I want to get your perspective on this. It seems like the kiss of death for a documentary is to include the subject as a producer in the film. And as compelling as the Michael Jordan documentary was, I'm sure they wouldn't be able to have his access and some of the footage without his involvement. You really got the sense that there were some chapters that were really glossed over that we could have gotten a lot deeper in. And I think that's the biggest irony of having Tony not being involved in this production at all, at least creatively, because we spoke about that specifically and how much he alluded to how much trust that he had to have in you in order to let you make this movie because he didn't have final cut and he's very used to having that. And the biggest irony is that it was such a flattering portrait of him in the end. Well, you know, it brings up a lot of points and, and you're right. And I think you could go one step further and say, it's very hard to make a documentary about someone who's alive because, because they have their own narrative. Their narrative is still changing and growing. And so with Tony, my, my whole thing was, uh, that it has to be this way because if it's not, then no one will consider this film a real film. It'll be a promotional piece for you if you produce it, if you have Final Cut, if any of that stuff. And that's not something that I'd be a part of. And, and I think our perception and, and our, our intelligence and our knowledge about the, the way things work in a social environment, especially with in the age of social media where people are getting canceled and everything, is... There's a much greater amount of data and understanding that Tony has than he would have had 20 years ago or any of us. So it was very brave of him to to let me do it. And and it's the only way I would have done it. But but it's funny because you think about you think about documentaries about people. And one of the things that my editor said to me that I thought was Greg Fenton, who's an amazing editor and also a skater and. And he said, we make documentaries about people. We don't make documentaries for people. And I think that's the, that's the dividing line between a lot of docs you see, which is you can tell the ones that were made for people, right? And it's like, well, we're going we're gonna to make that for them. And they're going to be able to use that as their launching pad or their promotion or whatever. Or they're at the end of their life and it's kind of their swan song before they die. Sure. But, but the challenge is to make it about somebody and not to fall prey to that because... Yeah, it certainly helps that Tony is coming on podcasts and talking about the film and everything. And you, and you want him to like the film enough to to want to promote it because you don't want a situation where someone is like, oh, this film came out and it's all lies and please don't watch it. Like, that'd be the worst situation. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to me, it that was, that was the challenge. And I spoke to Tony's brother, too, who's a big part of this film. And Tony's brother's a journalist. And, and he said he was in a, a class once in college in journalism. And someone came in and spoke. It might have been Joan Didion. And she said, when you're doing a profile on somebody, you don't want to get sued, but you also don't want them to send you a thank you letter. <laughs> and I thought that's, that's the balance of these documentaries, right? Yeah. Like, like I, don't want, I, I don't want Tony to come away from this experience like he felt like he was misrepresented, but I also don't want him to say, hey, thanks, because... I'm now all these people want to, you know, work with me and uh, sign me up to be spokespeople for their companies. But I think that when you show all the flaws of somebody and when you when you take the time to show them as human, the, the result is exactly what happened here, which is people people like you even more yeah. for seeing your flaws. And I'm sorry in the Jordan doc that we didn't get to see some more of his mistakes because it seemed like he was still holding on to having to be the guy or the best. Yeah. And, and I did, I felt the same way about that film, although I liked it very much. Did you see the Ricky Powell documentary? I did not. It was uh, it was really interesting. I mean, I, I knew Ricky, he was a very, he was a very complicated guy. Um, and he was, it was a really honest film. I mean, it dealt with addiction and, you know, some of his, his, sexual peccadilloes and really uh, interesting relationship with him and his mom. But at the end, it was like he came off as a very sympathetic character because of that honesty. And I think that's one of the things that regardless of whether you're a murderer or squeaky clean, it's like if you are able to, to be honest in a documentary like that, I think that, that resonates with the public. Yeah. They respond to that. Yeah. Tony was a very unique individual in that, in that so much of his income and his ability to keep having the lifestyle that he has comes from his image and people's perception of him and to, to open up his life for this film. I think, you know, it wasn't easy for him. And I don't, I don't think he really could predict 
how that would feel. And, and it wasn't, it, the process was not always easy. I'll, I'll say that much. But the thing I really like about Tony is that he made a commitment at the beginning and he never went back on that. You know, he never, he never tried to change the rules. And, and, and that, that's, that integrity is harder and harder to find, it seems like, in the world. Uh, I'm curious about the process of how you put a documentary like this together, because it seems like it's like this massive puzzle and the pieces are fluid and they can fit together in multiple ways. And you may not know where the story is leading and you don't know how it how it ends. And, you know, one of my favorite music documentaries of all time is the one that you directed. I'm trying to break your heart. The Wilco documentary. Oh, thank you. And it's just I mean, such a beautiful portrait of that band that I love. But there's a, there's a really interesting scene in that movie when they get a phone call from their label and they find out that they're being dropped. And it's a, it's a pivotal moment in that film. And you just happen to be lucky enough to, to be there to film it and to include it in, in, in the movie. And I'm wondering, did, did anything happen in the course of, of this Tony Hawk movie that dramatically changed the narrative arc of what you thought this movie was going to be about? Well, those are two very different films. In a way, the Wilco thing was a lot easier to make because... It was a pure verite doc. And even if you watch the interviews in that Wilco film, there's no mop-up interviews. There's no reflective interviews. All the interviews happen in real time. And I'm asking about what's happening in real time. There's no history of Wilco. There's no, hey, you should like this band because these people are telling you to. Uh, So that film, in a way, was a lot easier to make. And it did rely on some luck. Although, you know, that scene where they're dropped, I was hanging around that day and that week because they were waiting for a response from the record company. So that was like a calculated bit of luck. But still, that was an integral piece of film. I mean, if you did not get that, it would have been a different movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, with this, it's funny. We, we start the film almost uh, after, the, after the first scene where he's skating. We go straight to meeting his mom in the nursing home. And it starts with a piece of verite this film, but it's not a verite film at all. And, uh, you know, his mom died, I think, four or five weeks after we shot that footage. So I, I would say in some ways, it, it doesn't relate to that. It wasn't a pivotal moment, but that was the very first thing we shot because I asked Tony how his mom was doing, and he said she wasn't doing well. And and he said he, he goes and visits her. So I said, can I come along? And I will say to that point that I think there are two kinds of documentaries stylistically in terms of approach and structure. One is to be in full discovery mode. And the other one is to be in full scripted mode. Like those are the two extremes of docs. You take a film like Sound City. I think that that film was very good, but it was incredibly scripted. Like this is the story. We know the story. We know how it starts. We know how it ends. We know how we want to tell it. So let's... Now we just have to go shoot it. Let's lay it out. Let's, Let's outline it. Let's make three acts. Let's pick the interview people that will, that will be the right people at the right times in history to explain those chapters in Sound City. And we'll go out and we'll make those interviews and we'll make sure we get what we are looking for, right? The other kind is pure discovery. You know, say, say for example, you, you move in next door and then you find out your next door neighbors, it seems like they're running a crack den or, a, or something like that. Maybe, maybe you start just wandering over there with a camera and trying to befriend them. That's a full discovery approach. So for me, I've always, I've always loved the pure discovery approach more in terms of it, my own interests as a filmmaker. And, and, you know, you're a creative person. And I think the best thing about our jobs is we get up, we don't know exactly what we're going to come across in the day. And that's, that's the thing that keeps me coming back. So same thing with Tony. Um, I try not to have too many, too many organizational plans going in. I, I tried to just make it... Uh, to, I mean, obviously, I know, I know I'm going to tell the story of his life, but I wanted to discover it. So I, I sort of do a kitchen sink approach when I start with interviews. I try to ask everything. And then once I start talking to people and asking everything, a narrative starts to emerge. And then I can go back and get a little more specific. But, uh, but yeah, I'm not a, uh, I don't know, it would be much easier if I was the if I had planned it out a little bit more, but I just, to me, it's, it's much more surprising if you don't go into an interview with an agenda, or if you don't go into a pile of archive footage with an agenda, it's way more interesting to watch it and go, Oh, that thing, that thing. I don't know how it goes in there, but it has to go in there. And in terms of structure, 
how did you decide, or was it a conscious choice where to put the 900 chapter in the movie? Because I feel like the obvious choice would have been to kind of end on a high note with that. And I'm, this is a conversation we had with Tony too. It was something he was like, I did not want to do that at all. And, and I thought it was really artful the way you did. Was that a conscious choice? Was that a discussion you had with him? Well, I knew I didn't want to end with it because it's funny, the 900 to me, other than being an amazing accomplishment, it wasn't for me the, the thing that the movie was about. You know, by the time he did the 900, I, I wasn't as involved in skating and wasn't keeping up with it as much. And I saw it and I thought it was amazing. But to me, the 900 doesn't define Tony. Funny enough, I think most people think of Tony for the 900 and the video game. But for me, I think of him as the Bones Brigade videos and my nostalgia and passion for Del Mar Skate Park and Upland Skate Park, because I went to those all the time. And I, and I always love stories about people, how they, how they did it, how they, how they became the person they're becoming, not, not their ultimate accomplishment. You know what I mean? If I made a Chicago Bulls movie, it probably wouldn't be you know, about the sixth championship that Jordan won or something. You know? So I, I, guess, I guess for me, the 900, when I sat down with Tony... He said, the one thing I don't want to do is end the movie with the 900. And, and I said, great, because I don't want to either. And he goes, yeah, but I had a pitch made to me about my life, and they wanted to end it with the 900, and that was 20 years ago. And I was like, yeah, I'm way more interested in the fact that you're still skating when you're 50. I, like, that's way more interesting to me, and that's what I want to focus on. So, again, back to the discovery idea, when we got a pile of footage from uh, a couple of guys, Cameron Sanchez and Jared Prindle, who worked for Tony, and, and you know, we were able to look at a whole bunch of footage that people hadn't seen of him falling and attempting things. And, and that, that was more interesting to me was, was oh, we always, we, we always see clips of Tony landing the 900, but what does it take to get him there? So I don't think we knew that the 900 was going to land in the middle of the movie, but we knew it wasn't going to, happened in the end. And we knew that it was going to be a, not a triumph of his life, but more like a release. Like for me, Tony making the 900 is him finally, like he can move on. Yeah. He, he can, he can breathe a little bit. Like, cause one of the first things I learned about Tony a long, long time ago is that until he makes a trick, he's a miserable person to be around. And when he makes it, it's not like high five. It's, it's more like he's, he's released from some mental prison for a day until tomorrow when he thinks of a new trick he has to make. You know what I mean? In terms of, of, of going through all that old footage that you had access to, um, you mentioned Greg, your editor. I'm curious, what, what is your relationship with an editor on a documentary project like this? Because it seemed like, correct me if I'm wrong, like the, the role of an editor, it seemed like it would almost be an outsized role in a project like this as opposed to a scripted movie. You know what I mean? Because it's it's there's so many different ways you could put this together. I mean, did he become, is it almost like a co-director role? I mean, how involved were you in terms of cutting every frame of this film? Well, it, I have a different relationship with the editor on every documentary. In the case of Greg, we met at the skate park and Greg was skating at the same time I was as a kid. And he was one of the old guys at the Cove in Santa Monica that I would always see. Uh, there's about seven of us that'll still go there and pad up and, drop into the pool there. And, and so I always knew of him as, as a guy at the skate park. And then another editor was like, oh yeah, that's Greg Fenton, who's done a lot of great docs that you've heard of, like Waiting for Superman and It Might Get Loud. And they, he named me Malala and the Robin Williams doc and the Billie Eilish doc. And wow. he's, he's a pretty major doc editor. But to answer your question, it's different. I, I'm probably more hands-on than most directors when it comes to the editing room. I, I know from experience and from talking to a lot of doc editors and directors that it is often, for an editor, more of an editor's medium. But I think with Greg and I, it was more of a collaboration and a partnership in, in the sense that I'm, I'm way too invested in, the, in every aspect of it, from the, mu the right music at the right time to... You know, unlike most doc directors, I watched all the archive. And if something was, if, if Greg didn't pick something that I thought should be in there, we'd have an argument about it. Because I'm like, that backside Ollie at night has to be in the movie because that makes me want to go skate. You know, so, um, and, and Greg is 
phenomenally important to this project and and is so good at at creating scenes that build upon each other. So I also didn't want to step on him too much. And and this was the first time I kind of had to consciously tell myself, like, don't go over there every day and let it let him like let him just work. And and it was so it was such a learning experience for me because the film got so much better because I let him do what he's great at, you know. But when I came to him, I, I said I said two things. I said I I don't want this film to start in an expected way at all, and I want to establish from the very beginning that this is not a skate film in terms of what you're expecting. And I and I told him I wanted to do these tone poems in between scenes that that gave us a sense of who Tony was. Like we would talk about scenes: are we inside his head or are we back in, in the audience watching and and making sure that we we bounce back and forth. So an editor, and in this case, Greg, was the perfect partner on the project. And he taught me to step back a little bit. And I think maybe I helped him, you know, I helped him by by doing so much work of looking at archive and having sort of a clear idea of what scenes I thought were important, that it was a really good partnership. And it's such a good partnership that we're doing another film together. And, uh, and I hope to do a lot more with him. Amazing. I'm excited to yeah. see that. Um, well, so switching gears for a second, you, you wear a lot of different creative hats, a very successful career as a still photographer, um, podcast, a TV show, directing TV shows, directing movies. On one hand, it seemed like there's a real through line between those things, but they also involve a very different skill set. you know, like executing and coming up with a high concept, big budget photography shoot is much different than shepherding a conversation or directing a movie. And I'm curious which of the skill sets came very natural to you and which ones did you have to really struggle with in order to become successful? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I struggle with all of it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think I'm the kid, I was the kid growing up that just wanted to do everything. And, and I found something excited about everything. Every week I was into something else. One week I was building models. The next week we were sh- launching, you know, rockets. And then, and then I wanted to, be a herpetologist and I would go out and catch snakes. And, you know, the next week it was, it was, let's, let's make little super eight movies. And then it was, let's build a skateboard ramp. So I, my entire life, I have, I have put in the hours to figure out how to do the thing. Like I became a pretty good carpenter because I wanted to build skateboard ramps. I was a really bad thief though. And, and, uh, almost got caught stealing wood from a construction site when I was in high school to build a skateboard ramp. Uh, but, but with everything, um, like I love music. So I, I dive into music and then I built a recording studio at my house and then I became a part owner of a record company. And then I made my own records and I helped people make records. And I have this entire knowledge about, about recording music that, that was totally necessary at that time to fuel my obsession. But now it helps me in an incredible way when I'm doing posts on a movie, you know what I mean? So uh, to me, I think I've lived my life like there's not enough time and I, I love creative endeavors of any kind. I'm terrible at specializing, which means I never become a master at anything. Like I can never achieve the levels of what Tony did because I was into too many other things and I, I could never go to the skate park for seven hours. I love going to the skate park for two hours. Yeah. But then I wanted to go like make a skate magazine and put it out and do my own pictures for it and do my own logo and, you know, all that stuff. So I think... I mean, you realize there's an opportunity cost for being that focused on any one thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that I just love, you know, when I did off camera, I just love the fact that I could create this little creative empire that that no one... No one was telling me how to do it. Like that was the greatest thing because I didn't have any clients. I told my friend at one point, like, I don't know, when we just started the show, he said, what's, what's your goal with the show? And I said, my goal is not to have any clients. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I would rather make the thing than make the thing that sells the thing. Like, I love just diving into something and, and, and it's not to be success or to be rich or to um, get awards. It's really it's really to have the experience where you're really in it and you, and you get that buzz from, 
from making something with a group of people and feeling accepted and feeling like you are, you're part of a collective that is excited about, you know, that to me is the thing. What was something that you learned the most, like from, let's say the first episode to one of the later ones in terms of just how to shepherd a conversation and how to, how to get a compelling interview out of someone? Well, uh, I think learning to let it go where it's going to go, like being on camera was very hard for me because I, could, I couldn't sit there with my notebook and pause and say, oh, let me ask you that again. Or let me ask, you know, I, I wanted to keep the conversation going. And, and through that process of learning to be on camera, I realized that if you break eye contact with somebody while they are giving you an answer, then they, they lose their train of thought. It really taught me about how to be in a conversation and focus and listen. And I think when you listen, you realize how, how important a good follow-up question is. And, and you find that you, you, you notice the important things and you can let all the stuff you thought it was going to be go. So, so I guess for me, the, the simple answer is that I, I learned to listen better and I learned to um, not be so restrictive or controlling about what I wanted the end product to be or the end result. That's interesting. Um, so before, before, I started shooting. I was a I was a photography assistant for many years before I started taking pictures, and I was really fortunate. It kind of allowed me to get to witness a lot of different photographers and kind of see how they operate, and um, a lot of celebrity photographers. And it's really interesting. I know there's some some photographers that shoot celebrities when they walk on set, they almost hold themselves as if they're a celebrity themselves, like almost as if to be like, Hey, we're all equals. We're in the biz. We're just collaborating for the day, you know? And that's kind of yeah. how they disarm the person. And then there's other photographers that might use humor or self-deprecation to kind of disarm, you know, a celebrity. And it's a really fascinating psychological study to get to watch these interactions. And, and I'm curious, like, what are some of the tools that you use to navigate shooting extremely famous people with sometimes extremely outsized or fragile egos? Like, what are some of your strategies? Well, first off, I envy the fact that you got to see how a bunch of different photographers did it. I always envied my assistants because I never assisted. And so I would always pepper my assistants for, well, how did Peggy Serrata do it? Or how, did, how is Mark Seliger doing it? Or, how, you know, I'd, I'd hire Andy Leibovitz's assistants and be like, how does she get people to, like, what's her trick? You know, I, one of the best tricks I learned, I hired Annie's assistant. And I said, how did she get Gene Hackman to go in the, in the water, in his clothes, in a inner tube? And the assistant said, Annie told Gene that she'd let him leave an hour early if he, <laughs> if he would do this picture. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's important to remember People don't want to spend their day doing this. Yeah. So sometimes your best barter tool is time. It's like, hey, do this dumb idea I have and you can leave at three instead of four. Um, it's really funny. So, so I picked up all my information secondhand through assistance. And because uh, I'm such a curious person and, and, and I think, but, uh, but to answer your question, I don't think I had any set way of doing things. I think I was always very anxious and, but also very specific about ideas that I wanted to get. And I'm very hard on myself. So if I had this idea and either the publicist stood in the way or the person didn't want to do it, it would crush me. And I had to learn. Like it took me a long time to learn how to manage that and manage relationships with, that's another reason about, you know, not wanting clients. Like I just don't do well with managing the expectations of a publicist or presenting something in the right way. And and it, it took me a long time. It took me kind of until my show to learn how to work with a publicist and how valuable it could be and how many of them I actually liked. But, you know, when I started, I was such a kid. And and so no one trusted me. Or, and so it was always an uphill battle to get my idea straight to the uh, to the subject's ears without it going through the channels of email or whatever with a publicist. Did that process become easier as you scale up in terms of your success and the size of the celebrities that you're shooting, or does it get more difficult? I think it's experience. There's two things. There's experience, which is the more you do it, the more you've seen how it's happened, the more you've been in a situation, and the next time that situation comes up, you can handle it better from experience. There's absolutely no substitute for experience. I know it's a cliche, but 
there's no substitute. And the other thing that really helped me was right after I did that Wilco movie, I did a lot of press for it. And so for the first time in my life, I was the subject of a lot of photo shoots. And that was hugely revealing to me because until you go on the other side, you don't know what it looks like to have a photographer trying to talk you into something or trying to trick you or manipulate you or, or uh, who has an agenda that doesn't fit with what you want to do. And, and it's something that it never crossed my mind. And now I tell every photographer that asked me, they, like, if you had to give me one trick on how to be better with the subject, what would it be? I say, go, go get someone to photograph you. That's really interesting. And, and, and I learned like so many things from that experience. And I had so much more empathy for the subject after that. And I had so much more understanding of how hard it is to hold three different ideas in your head. You know, sometimes we do things like, well, you know, I want you to act like you, you're excited. And at the same time, keep your chin down and remember that, that, um, you know, the lights over here, yeah. it's, it's, it's very difficult to be a subject. It is. And I think it's so easy to lose sight of the, of the fact when you're a photographer, it's like you get so wrapped up in your perspective. You're like, okay, this is my big day. This is a huge job. This is a huge opportunity. This is maybe a huge subject. But from the other perspective, it's like, yeah, this is, this is just another shoot for them. This is another day in their life. You're one of many. Yeah. And, and the other thing I learned was that oftentimes the the subject or the celebrity does not get much of an introduction. There's so much, uh, the photographer's been told, oh, you only have this much time or, you know, there's only, they'll only do this. Or, so by the time, by the time the person shows up, the photographer has so much anxiety that their energy can be really off-putting. <laughs> and, and I learned that it, it's like taking five minutes without a camera in your hand and just going, Okay, here's what I was thinking, but I got some, you know, tell me if these are dumb ideas and human to human instead of photographer to subject. Yeah, and it's it's not a it's not a manipulative thing. It's more just like understanding a little bit what their experience is and and what it might look like and and that they might have some anxiety walking in. You know, I used to think that you know, when you start doing this job, you think, oh, this is the greatest day for the actor. They get to, they're going to be on the cover of a magazine. They must be super excited. But you find out that, no, this is kind of like going to the dentist and there's more to lose than there is to gain from a bad picture. That's a great way of putting it. And there's a lot of protection going on for them. So once you understand that and, and you learn to give a little bit and to not be so, again, my big lesson is don't be so... Uh, uh, strident about that your ideas have to be, you know, that they, that there's only one way to do something. You know, you, you, you really have to, you know, it's the same as an interview as, as a photographer. I think you really have to understand that you are in a collaboration with somebody and it's, it's not just about you. And, and, and if you try to fit someone into an idea you have without taking into account their personality or their mood or, or who they are physically or whatever, that, then you're sort of, you're sort of not doing your job. How much, how much of your time do you spend shooting still photos these days? Because, I mean, you've had a very successful career. You've done some huge budget, amazing, high concept editorial shoots. Um, the state of print media is kind of dire right now. Have you, have you had to adapt as a result or have you kind of moved on from that chapter and that's, that's why you're directing stuff now? You know, professionally, zero amount of time lately. Um, and that's sort of because I have four films in various states of being in the can or close to the can. And it's very exciting for me right now. So, um, but I'm also shooting, <laughs> funny enough, I'm back to my roots. My, my first job, I was a photojournalist for the Associated Press. And I shot a lot of news and a lot of uh, features and a lot of sports. And I just, I just finished this film, this documentary where... I, I did all the camera operating, which was great and super tiring and it's such a hard job. But in Verite, the best way to direct a doc is to shoot it yourself. So I did a lot of that and I got a lot of equipment for that job. And one of the pieces of equipment I got uh, loaned to me was a 400 millimeter 2.8 lens, which I haven't used since I was a sports photographer. And my daughter is a diver. And she's diving for um, uh, a club team that practices at UCLA, and she's incredibly serious about it. So I've been going to her meets and shooting diving photographs, and my daughter and I have been like making 
edits and sending them to the parents. So I've, I've become like a high school sports photographer. <laughs> Accidentally, That's because because it's a nice way for my daughter and I to bond. But yeah, it, truthfully, I've been I've been directing a lot and enjoying it so much. And I, I love I love the act of making imagery. But I am distressed and disturbed with the the state of the industry right now. The state of the industry, or, or that photography is so ubiquitous, and we stare at it all day through Instagram and every other medium. It's just changed for me, I, I guess. And I'm loving making films so much right now. But who knows what the future holds, you know? Um, well, I was, doing, I was doing some research for this episode, and, and I saw that you directed an episode of Ted Lasso. Yes. I love that show. I love that show, too. It's so great. So it would seem to me, for episodic TV, since the, the characters are so developed already, and the tone and the pacing of the show is so flushed out, that directing a TV show would be a little less critical than, let's say, a director of uh, a feature where you're starting from scratch. But after watching your episode, it, it felt so different than the rest of the series. It had a real like dreamlike surrealness to it. And, and I'm wondering, like, how did that episode come about? And, and why did your episode feel so unique compared to, to the rest of the series? Well, my episode, which was episode 209, uh, uh, second season, it was an outlier. It was it was a deviation from the narrative of the the main A story that is you know Ted Lasso trying to coach this team and dealing with his own inner demons. And it it dove into the world of Coach Beard, and it was it was a chance to have a little fun with an episode to find out a little bit more about this assistant coach that never says two words. You know, he's sort of like this quiet sage, and. It was it was a fun thing to be able to make an episode about a guy who you know know nothing of his backstory, and he has this crazy night that was kind of loosely an homage to uh, Martin Scorsese film called After Hours, and it was written by Brett Goldstein, who plays uh, Roy Kent on the show, and he's a great writer. But yeah, that show it's almost not fair to judge that as a as an episodic TV directing job because. Uh, it was more like a miniature movie. It was like a like a, a bottle episode that didn't really fit with the rest. Exactly, of the exactly. And and you know it was challenging because it was during COVID, because it was mostly night shoots, and because it was mostly exteriors. There was stunts. There was a high fall. There was a fight. You know, there's there's no B story to cut to. So you're, you're sort of you're sort of dealing with more feature like elements in that episode. And funny enough, the script was I think 70 pages long, wow. which is crazy because the show was supposed to be a half hour. But good good on Apple for not like worrying too much about the length of these shows. So it was it was a more challenging experience. It was it was I was in London for a month doing the one episode. Talk to me about there was one scene in that episode that I must have watched 10 times of the scene when he starts dancing in the club it was just yeah fantastic like, how did that come about was that did he have that talent just brewing waiting to get out I mean because he really brought it in that scene it was like out of nowhere I wasn't expecting that uh, you know funny enough he is and this is this is a testament to Brett Goldstein who who's smart enough to write to an actor's strengths and he knows that you know Brendan Hunt who plays Coach Beard, is a great dancer. He's an improv comic, but he also has this weird hula hoop skill. And he, he actually used to do this hula hoop bit in this theater show. It, I think he was in Amsterdam. And, and Brett knew about this, so he, he wrote sort of this scene where, where Coach Beard really gets to show you who he really is inside, and he, and he expresses it through hula hooping and dancing. And so that, that was a bit of smart writing on, on Brett's part which made it easy for us because Brandon was so good at it that, you know, we were able to, we were able to make our day because that, that was tough. You know, anytime you're shooting a scene where there's 200 extras and, and you're, you're trying to follow a love story narrative, you're trying to tie all these pieces together. It, it could have been a total disaster. And, uh, and instead, it just was really fun because yeah. he, he was such a great dancer and, and he had so much fun with it. Well, well done. I, it's one of my favorite episodes. Thank you. So we always like to end the, end the episode by asking a guest to kind of pay it forward and, and plug something that they're not involved with, a project, whether it's a movie or a TV show or another photographer, a cause, uh, a book. Is there something you want to kind of give some shine to that you feel it hasn't gotten enough attention? Huh, that's a good question. And, and this, is, 
not a spoiler alert, but it is the way we end the Tony Hawk movie, which is that Tony has for many, many years had a foundation called the Skate Park Project. And a little backstory on this is that when I was about 18 or 19, all the parks closed and they all got shut down because skateboarding was dying and, and there was these, these private companies couldn't pay for the insurance that it took to keep them open. And so we lost all our places to skate. And it was a real hard time in skateboarding. And Tony, when he started to have some success and make some money, started this foundation to help empower kids to get skate parks built in their cities and especially underserved communities. Like for instance, there's a skate park in Compton, but, but his foundation, it has created like over 10,000 skate park projects that, that they've been involved in or tangentially involved in. And, and they've created this, this worldwide phenomenon of, of whatever city you go to, there's a skate park and there's a, a, thriving community of kids and and that's tony's legacy more than the olympics or the 900 or or however many tricks he's invented to me he wanted to make sure that the pain he felt when his local skate park got bulldozed it never happened to any other kids and that they had safe places to skate so if i want to pay it forward to anything in relation to this movie it would be you know go to the skate park foundation or, or sorry it's called the skate park project Great. Okay. Well, so go ahead and donate to the skate park project. If you feel so inclined, it does a lot of good. And, uh, Sam, thank you for sitting down. I really appreciate you taking the time out. I know you're a busy man. I've been a big fan of your photography for a long time. And then we have a conversation and it turns out, God damn it. You're a nice guy too. And you're talented at oh. so many other things. So, uh, you really, <laughs> it's an, it's a nice surprise to find uh, people that you respect are actually uh, nice people as well. So uh, thank you for taking the time out and, um, go see, it's called Tony Hawk Until the Wheels Fall Off. It's on HBO and HBO Max, and it, and it premieres on April 5th at 9 p.m. Great. So go check that out. It's a really, it's a fantastic movie, artfully done, and there's a lot of heart in that movie, too. It's a really, really great movie. Thank you. And I have to say, I appreciate talking to another creative and another photographer, and it's, it's fun to share this kind of work with people who appreciate it and, and know what a, what a commitment it is to dive into a project like this. And, and, and I, I'm kind of sad it's over because it was so fun to wake up every day and know that I was, you know, in, in this thing that I love making. And I appreciate talking about it with you. Well, mad respect. It's a great movie. And um, hopefully we'll, our paths will cross soon in person. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan, with sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.